I, I was born in the 70s. And at that time, if you look back historically, it was, it was an exciting time then because at that unique era in history, uh, that this was about 30, 40 years after we had all just been killing each other in World War II. And at that particular juncture, all these nations that were you know, not that long ago fighting and killing each other came together to plan the International Space Station. That's a, really a remarkable achievement, if nothing, even obviously from an engineering point of view, but also from a political point of view, that these countries and nations that we came together and said, you know, this is more important than uh, us fighting over petty politics. So it's a remarkable time. And uh, the ISS came out of that. It's research into how the human body reacts in zero gravity came out of that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's also taken a long time. And it's to no one's discredit. It's just the nature of a complex arrangement like that. And political entities, they are going to move slow. But, you know, now we have that, that kind of bedrock upon which to sit to start to think about humanity's next steps in space. You know, what's, what's the future for us? Colonization of orbit, colonization of moon, of Mars, these things are all going to happen in our lifetime. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at Fringe.fm. What did you dream of becoming as a kid? I bet for a lot of you, astronaut was high up there on the list. What could be cooler? Putting on the suit, going into space, going where no man, woman, or child has gone before. One small step, right? Well, today we've got someone who's in that vein, but doing something almost cooler, almost much cooler, in fact. Today, we've got Frank Bunger on the line. Frank's a veteran tech exec, serial entrepreneur, and the founder and CEO of Orionspan, a startup that's building a space hotel, literally the second space station, 200 miles above Earth, and letting individuals, six at a time, go to Aurora Station, spend $790,000 a night, and have one of the coolest experiences of their life. It's incredibly interesting and something that Frank got into because he realized he couldn't make it as an astronaut. With his previous tech experience, he thought, you know what? Space looks interesting. Let's look into this. So he did. In today's program, we're going to discuss the future of interstellar travel, why now is the time for space tech startups, how Frank's company plans to put a profitable hotel in orbit, profitably, the biggest problem of putting people in space, why we're still more than a few years off from a moon or Mars colony, the importance of sci-fi and technology and invention, how the shift from public to private space companies is transforming the industry, the effects of ownership and asteroid mining in space, Frank's thoughts on evolution as we move into space, the reason Frank views space exploration as merely amplified globalization, and the awesome effects of space technology on the rest of the economy. And now without further ado, I give you Frank Bunger. Just a quick warning, I want to apologize for some of the parts of Frank's audio. There are some parts where it does cut in and out and he sounds a little bit like Arnold from the Terminator. But you're still able to get the entirety of what's going on and follow a really, really fascinating conversation. It was incredible talking with Frank. I'm glad he was able to lend us time out of his busy day to chit-chat about the future of space travel technology and where we're headed as a society. Now, obviously, there's a couple of challenges, but I know you will enjoy this podcast. So again, I give you Frank Bunger. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. 
People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the cash app and coffee. Seriously. Disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix and save money on coffee. And now let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I think it's very relevant. What did you dream of becoming when you were a kid? I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid, and I'm probably not alone in, in that dream. Uh, but uh, I was also one of those kids that got horribly motion sick just driving down the street to Safeway. So I realized early on that a career into the Air Force and test pilot and that, that tried and true path probably wasn't going to work out for me. So I largely shelved my interest in space until just recently. When I reapproached the business in the last few years, I started to think, how could I apply all the skills I learned as an entrepreneur, as a startup executive, and my uh, experience in Silicon Valley to bear on the space business to make things move faster, more efficiently, and more leanly than has typically been done in aerospace. Has it been inefficient just because it's been primarily government-driven before SpaceX? Yeah, to some degree. So the, the, I think the, the biggest kind of legacy challenge in the business is that government contracts have been going to large aerospace companies, and those companies don't have any motivation to control cost because they charge cost plus, meaning they come up with a cost and they add 30% for their profit margin. So there's actually a perverse incentive to increase cost rather than reduce cost because the more that you increase cost, the bigger your 30% is in dollar amount. So I think we started to see that start to reverse with players like, I think you really have to credit SpaceX as being the first player to really reverse that to some degree uh, and start to drive cost out of the system. And now that we're starting to see more and more, not just launch startups, but a, a plethora of space startups that are largely focused on the same thing, using trends like commoditization of hardware, cheaper, better, faster uh, computer hardware, and, and the uh, also cheaper uh, launch costs over time to take advantage of that and create a similar bloom in uh, technology and capabilities that we've also seen in the technology business in the last 10 to 15 years. And so you decide to get into this because you would have been a failure as an astronaut, but you're a solid entrepreneur. <laughs> I, I guess you could summarize it that way. I, I think more broadly speaking, there's, um, this has always been a huge passion of mine. And what I feel is that uh, I, I was born in the 70s. And at that time, if you look back historically, it was, it was an exciting time then because at that unique era in history, this was about 30, 40 years after we had all just been killing each other in World War II. And at that particular juncture, all these nations that were you know, not that long ago fighting and killing each other came together to plan the International Space Station. That's a, really a remarkable achievement, if nothing, even obviously from an engineering point of view, but also from a political point of view, that these countries and nations that we came together and said, you know, this is more important than us fighting over petty politics. So it's a remarkable time. And uh, the ISS came out of that. Uh, it's it's research into how the human body reacts in zero gravity came out of that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's also taken a long time. And it's to no one's discredit. It's just the nature of a complex arrangement like that and political entities, they are going to move slow. But, you know, now we have that that kind of bedrock upon which to sit to start to think about humanity's next steps in space. You know, what's, what's the future for us? Colonization of orbit, colonization of moon, of Mars, these things are all going to happen in our lifetime. And uh, you know, my goal in starting Orion Span was to start to make the first serious steps towards what we could, uh, towards actually making these things a reality. So that, that's where the, the concept of Aurora Station came from. 
So what happened? You grew up in the 70s and throughout that whole era, the 60s, the 70s, there was a massive space race and excitement. And suddenly today we're excited about getting a new iPhone and kids don't really, they don't really give a shit about doing anything big with their lives. What happened? <laughs> well, actually, I, I, I think uh, there's definitely, I think there's definitely a trend that, that people are more consumed with their gadgets and their electronics these days. But I think actually, at least in terms of space stuff, I actually think the reverse. I actually think the excitement today is bubbling more than it has been since the 70s, the heyday of the space race. And I think the reason for that is because of, again, I think you have to largely credit folks like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos with the origin that these people are, they are rock stars in their field and they achieve things that everybody said was impossible for private industry and they achieve them, you know, profitably. So I think that's why we, you start to sense a lot of excitement that these dreams of next step for humanity in space that were largely shelved after the 70s for some time are starting to come back. And not only are they starting to come back, they're, com- they're coming back in a commercially viable way, which is, is really the most important part. Because uh, anytime there is something supported solely by government funding, inevitably political winds will change and you don't know what will happen with that funding as time goes on. So the only way to really sustain that kind of activity is the same way as it is on Earth. You know, if you, if you want to sustain a town, it's not going to, a government could sustain it, but that's not going to last forever. The way it really sustains itself is through economic activity and trade, trading of goods and services and you know, movement of people in and out of the, that zone. So it's, I think it's the same thing here. And I, I think that that excitement is, is starting to bubble because people are sensing that the, that time is nearly at hand now. And I've certainly sensed it when we announced our station. I mean, the, the, we were in something like 1,500 media outlets in only a month. So it, it, the excitement has, has been off the charts. Well, you're building a hotel in space. So the guys we referenced earlier, they were billionaires. So obviously they had some resources mm-hmm. behind them to try the impossible. You mm-hmm. are, I mean, someone who was somewhat successful, but for all intensive purposes and nobody, what made you think that you could do this? And why have you guys been so successful to date? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a billionaire. I'm not even a millionaire for that matter. But uh, what, I, what I am is a entrepreneur who knows how to secure funding and, and do things extremely leanly. So if you think that to reach the point that we reached where we announced Aurora Station, the IP we generated, the, the patents, the technology, the, the, uh, all the bits around that, I mean, we have a staff uh, at the time of, of five people. Right? It's very, very lean. So do we need more staff, of course, to, to uh, go on with the project? But it's, it, there's, it's amazing what you can do when everybody's motivated and people are multi-talented. I mean, the, my marketing department is me. Uh, that's uh, plus some some PR folks. The guy who did the website that was me, right? It's like this is this is a startup. We we don't have the luxury of uh, what larger companies do or better funded uh, people do, where they can hire entire teams, which inevitably slows things down too, and then maybe produce something a little different. And it also means that we can take risks that nobody else can take because we are small, and uh, that's that's kind of where we're at. This is Eric Lee's lean startup model in a nutshell. When companies are able to move faster and break things, so to speak, they're able to go at much lower budgets. Thanks to technology and innovation from the iPhone and many other consumer tech products, space tech startups are now able to get started on a bootstrapped budget, bringing competitive prices much, much lower, making considerably more innovation for consumers, and overall improving the technology and performance significantly. This is going to be a very interesting era of space technology and where we're headed. So in terms of uh, you know where, why I'm coming at this and or where I'm coming at this from is that and this is this is to me the most exciting part is that you no longer need to be a billionaire to have a successful space startup and that, that's the central thesis of uh, why I got into the business because you're right if you obviously if you're a billionaire you can do anything because money is no object but what's changing now is that 
there's enough interest in an outside investment coming into the space business that it's possible to have companies operate and operate off of venture capital. And that was one of the key theses for me is that it's got to be it's got to be possible to be venture funded because otherwise you're just looking in a you know black hole of of essentially philanthropy right? or uh, space force. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just it, 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 it's it's that's not going to work commercially, right? It's got to be if there's not a route for it to be venture fundable and for an investor to get a return to think that they can get a return on their investment and eventually get that return, maybe it's a little longer tail. Then you know we're not. Then if, if that is true, then then they're not yet at the point where that, that activity is going to bloom. But um, I think what we've seen from other successful space startups and a lot of them uh, oriented around remote Im- imaging, uh, remote sensing, is that that time is now at hand. You're starting to see them acquisitions. That means exits for investors. They get their money back plus you know X number of multiples. So that that's I think the difference between 10, 15 years ago when Musk and Bezos started and today is that when those guys started, it was essentially philanthropy. And today it is something that is potentially a huge return for investors. It is, but let's face it. I imagine that's not your driving force. And I know you need to say we want to return a thousand times X for our venture investors. But let's be let's be realistic. What is your driving force behind this? And how will you know when you've been successful? Mm-hmm. Well, my driving force is obviously the, the mission of, of getting people into space and making that routine and getting to the point where we're building communities in space, right? That, that's the driving force. The funding vehicle for investors to get their return is that's that's their angle, right? That they have to get a return, and that's how it has to operate because otherwise, there's no path for commercial commercially viable entities to do this. So, yeah, you're you're right. It's it's not exactly my angle. I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not in this to personally get rich. I couldn't care less about being rich or not. My goal is to to take these to make these steps a reality and to to actually get this thing going. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Oh, that looks beautiful from here, It has a stark beauty all its own. It's uh, like m- much of the high desert of uh, the United States. It's uh, different, but it's very pretty out here. So I know you're a little bit biased with this, but what do you see the future of space civilization, space life? Is is it planets? Is it moons? Is it space stations? Is it orbitals? What are your thoughts? Yeah, obviously, my uh, you can probably guess my perspective, but it's I think it's a little bit of all of those. I think you know the the near term here is uh, orbit to me is the next logical step in having people in space, and the reason is because it is the closest and safest of all space destinations, right? In, in terms of actual time to get there, it takes about an hour to get there. It takes about two to three hours to return to the surface. So it's, it's not that far. You've got the Earth's magnetic field to protect you. You know, the dangers of going to and from are, are pretty well understood at this point. The risks to the body of being in zero gravity are pretty well understood at this point. So it's, it's the, the kind of the, it's also the lowest cost in terms of energy, you know, delta V, the, the amount of impulse needed to reach low Earth orbit is lower than to reach anywhere else. So the costs are lower. So I, I think it, to me, that's the, the next logical step. And we certainly will see uh, moon colonies. I'm, I'm confident by the end of our lifetimes and hopefully Mars colonies as well if, if Mr. Musk is successful. But uh, if you think that there, there's uh, a part of the reason I started Aurora Station the way that I did is that I felt that the visionaries were looking farther ahead and leaving behind this this gap here in, in orbit when um, that is actually the closest, lowest cost, relatively speaking, and safest of space destinations. When you're on the moon, when you're on Mars, you've got a lot more problems with radiation, with Somebody, say somebody has a medical emergency, well, you know, it's going to be three, if you're on the moon, it's going to be three days, four days till you can return. So the, the risks are a lot higher. There's uh, 
and the same thing on, on Mars. I mean, essentially going to Mars is going to be a one-way ticket for the, for the time being. So I, I think that we, we will see all these, but what we need here is for visionaries and governments that have the budget to, uh, to do those inroads to places like the moon or Mars and for the rest of the commercial business to start focusing on low Earth orbit as government starts to exit that and hand that over to industry. So will the first, will the first installations, specifically the, the planetary or the, the moon-based ones, do you foresee that being government, private, or some combination thereof? Or, or, or global? Yeah, I kind of expect it'll probably be government for starters because uh, it's just it's hard to make money uh, going to the moon. If you want to establish a, a moon base, that's that's awesome. But you know, how do you make that make that profitable? So that means either government or billionaires with enough billions that they can sustain that for some time. What about like a planetary resources? But instead of mining asteroids, mining the moon, mining planets, would, would that make sense? You know much more than yeah. I do, so I'm just speculating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, I, that's certainly a potential profit center. Absolutely, but I, I think the, the at least in the next few years, it's uh, that, that that those plans are probably you know say probably about ten years out for that all to come to fruition, five to ten years out, because it, it's it is all those things are feasible, but they have never yet been done. It doesn't mean they can't be done. It doesn't mean they won't be done. But it means that it's gonna it's probably gonna take a little longer than anyone expects uh, to figure out, and uh, a mistake is costly if you try to say if you're uh, either capturing an asteroid in orbit or you're mining on the moon, things go, something goes wrong. You know, it's not that easy to fix as it would be if we're mining here on Earth, your machine gets stuck, your robot gets stuck. So those, those are all complexities that are added by you know, the, the distance and not having manual hands to, to potentially fix something uh, available at all times. What does it look like in terms of tickets to go to Aurora Station? Where are you guys at with the process? What's the, what's the entirety look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're so we're uh, selling a twelve day trip, and the the key here is that, and I think part of the reason we got so much attention was that what we're selling here is an experience rather than a room in a hotel. We had the insight that for for folks of uh, high net worth individuals who can afford this, you know, they can more or less afford all the material things in the world they want. But what they what is special is experiences that you can't beat. So this is like climbing Mount Everest, right? It's, it's something exciting that you will never forget and will change your life forever. So the, the starting ticket prices are at, at 9.5 million to go up there for the 12 day trip. And we, uh, yeah, as, as you've seen, we've gotten quite a few people on board already, uh, signed up for it on the wait list. And, uh, there's, there's more coming all the time. So it's been, it's been very exciting a couple months here. When, when do you guys plan on getting, uh, getting a space station up there? And then what are the zoning requirements? I know it's challenging just to open a hotel on earth. Take a second to think about the question here. Frank's answer will stun you. Want to just have this quick timeout so that you're able to really think about what your thoughts are on the future of space and then see what the realities are. But now let's get back to Frank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, actually, in some ways, it's ironically easier because those zoning requirements and hotel laws don't exist in space. So in some ways, that's, that's actually easier. Uh, and obviously, in other ways, it's more complex uh, because we've got some regulatory items like ITAR and the FAA to deal with. But uh, those are uh, those are quite quite manageable. It's it's really more that the the, the process of getting up there is going to be. It's really more about the, the design and manufacture. But we think we can have this thing built and launched by late 2021, and uh, so we'll start taking guests then in early 2022. Is the plan at the moment? And you talked about it a little bit before, but the the effects of low gravity on human beings. Can you just go over a little bit briefly what we've learned so far, and then what the thoughts are on? how that could potentially impact either hotel travelers or people in the future when we start to live further out. Yeah. Well, for hotel travelers, the good news is that a short stay like 12 days or even 30 or 60 days is is not really going to affect you much. So that, that that's the good news. But what we have seen is for folks like Scott Kelly, who spent a year in space and other folks like that, some of the, the uh, Russian astronauts as well, who spent extended times 
in zero gravity is that there are effects like bone loss, there's effects on your cardiovascular system, people return to earth and, and feel sick for some time. And this is a little bit the nature of, of being in zero gravity is that your, your, your body, our bodies are adapted, you know, very uniquely, we evolved and adapted to exactly what we have on earth, right? The conditions on earth, both gravity and uh, oxygen and everything. So when that's taken away, there's, there's elements in your body that just don't know what to do. Some slip discs are more common in zero gravity. So a lot of, kind of odd things like that. But the, the good news is, so short, short run, no effect. For in the long run, thinking ahead to colonization of orbit, my goal here is to, in the long run, is to have a, an amount of artificial gravity available. It'll probably be between 0.6 to 0.8 G, which is, our research has shown is, is about the sweet spot uh, and gives you enough, gives you enough of that, that sensation of being on Earth that these effects don't kick in. So at that point, you've, you've negated that problem. There are also medications you can take to counteract some of the effects. And what, what I've heard is that astronauts typically, uh, professional astronauts typically don't take those medications because they're afraid that they might get disqualified from flight in the future. But for, in our case, for hotel visitors, not a real problem. Long-term stays, uh, potentially something we could evaluate until we're at a point that we do have a piece of infrastructure that's rotating and giving that, that simulated gravity uh, to counteract some of these effects. What? So simulated gravity being from rotation or from some yes. other okay. rotation. Can you explain a little bit more for listeners who are interested how we could replicate gravity in space? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the, the idea here to the easiest way today to essentially emulate gravity in, in open space, so not on the moon or Mars where you have some amount of gravity thanks to those being pretty large planetary bodies, but in, in open space or in orbit where it's zero gravity, the easiest way to do this today is to uh, spin a structure. So the same way at, at back here on Earth, if you're in a merry-go-round or a Ferris wheel, uh, you know, you've, you've probably felt the effect of being pushed out as you're spinning around that merry-go-round. So the same concept in a space structure. You can rotate it at a speed to get some amount of uh, effectively gravity. And while you, so while you're spinning, uh, you know, picture yourself standing at the, the end of that spin, uh, the, the, if that makes sense. So then you're kind of being pushed down and out, and you can simulate any amount of gravity depending on the rotational velocity. So there's, there's a lot of pretty cool concepts out there for, you know, for how this might be done. And most, most concepts tend to be really, really large and expensive structures. If, when, when we do get to that point in the, the mid to late 2020s that we start to go down that route, our plan is to make this as simple as possible uh, and, and as, as safe as possible. Because if, you know, the more that we can keep it simple uh, and reduce that cost, the, the more likely it is that we can have people up there regularly. How much of the inspiration for these type of designs and then just the type of future thinking necessary to create businesses like this is driven by sci-fi? I think a good bit. I, I think, you know, sci-fi, uh, there's, you know, sci-fi in many ways, I think, in, inspires a lot of creativity. If you look back at old Star Trek episodes or even Star Wars, a lot of those those technologies that you see there uh, start to come to fruition. Like uh, Star Trek Next Generation had had early versions of the iPad, and Star Wars had all sorts of stuff too. So I think there, there's absolutely these these are ideas that people come up with, and science fiction writers are great at the creativity there. And then it's up to engineers and business folks to figure out how to actually if it's actually possible to make it in some form, and then uh, secondly sell it. Because uh, that's uh, in the space business, you always want to make sure you're you're actually able to sell what you're building. What would be what would be some of your favorite or most influential writers, books, pieces, etc., either from now or growing up? I think uh, I was kind of a more of a liberal arts guy, actually. So I, I read a lot of uh, classic literature, and uh, you know, I, I think probably influential for me growing up was was indeed some of those classics. Like I remember reading uh, uh, the Odyssey and uh, some of those those bets when I was a kid, and I remember that. 
what struck me when reading the classics and it wasn't just the Odyssey, but what struck me then was that the, the kind of universal search for, for meaning uh, across, you know, thousands of years of human existence, even in these classics, you saw characters, you know, yearning to understand what, what their purpose was and why they were here. Or if it was something like um, the book of Job, you know, why, why, was, why was God punishing Job? So that the kind of yearning to understand and, and determine like, you know, why are we here or why are we, why are things that, why are things happening to me or not happening to me or to, to us? I know what you're thinking. AI. And we'll get there. One sec. But first, today's episode and all of French FM is brought to you 100% ad-free by the folks at French FM. We put in a lot of effort into every episode to try to improve the world and to make your life at least a little bit better. If you like what we're doing, we would greatly appreciate your support. You can go to fringe.fm slash Patreon to support us there and help us to create more great content like this and to try our best to change the world at least a little bit. But now let's get back to Frank and his thoughts on AI in the future of space. I think those things, I, I found a, a universal thread and you can see it in all literature through today, even it tends to be today good movies. If you look at the best movies and the best television series, they often also have these same components of a, a yearning to understand why we're here, concepts of destiny, and you know, trying to figure out what's what the deeper meaning is of things. So, so I think that's probably the the one thing that I've taken away through my life is, is feeling that all human beings seek to have a greater understanding of our place in the world. And, and I think that applies whether you're a religious person or not, and whatever ethnicity you are, I don't think it matters. Uh, and men uh, or women, I think it's universal across all people. It definitely is. Would you call yourself a philosopher? Yeah, I guess in some ways I am. <laughs> I, I certainly read a lot of philosophy when, I, philosophy when I was younger. How has that impacted you to date? Mostly it's made me more thoughtful. And um, I, I've also kind of half-jokingly decided that I want my son to be a philosopher, but uh, we'll see if that comes to fruition or not. <laughs> well, it's not like it's not like memorizing facts will be very useful for for very long. <laughs> yeah, apparently not. But uh, philosophy is, is something that, unfortunately, you know, it's largely in in the modern era, kind of not an interesting profession. But historically, philosophers were were sought after as keepers of wisdom and and you know, people who thought deeply about life and meaning and is the world even real? Those kinds of concepts, right? Like Matrix or Inception, those kinds of those kinds of themes are exploited in those movies. And but today it's a little bit on the, the down and out. I think we'll move a bit back towards that because as we do get to more of a futuristic world where a lot of things are taken care of, the the value becomes asking the question, not necessarily trying to find the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does artificial intelligence play into what you're doing today? And what are what are some of the implications you see? It's a strong component because if you think that uh, if you think back to the era of when the ISS was being first planned in the the seventies and early eighties, so it, it it was intended to be many things, including manufacturing, storage depot, fuel depot, space laboratory. Uh, so it, it had many roles in mind. But as the political and budgetary winds blew it eventually got cut back to really being a space laboratory more than anything. It's very, very hard to coordinate incentives between groups, political entities, etc. This is part of the reason why if you look towards sci-fi and towards what we can foresee as the future of humanity, there's the concept of a type one civilization or a civilization where all government or all of a planet has come under one leadership so that we're able to more effectively utilize resources needed to become an interplanetary species. It doesn't really happen when there's squabbling and fighting between different governments or organizations on who gets to control or who puts budget in or who is in charge of, etc., etc. Those are those are some of the implications, and we'll be seeing much more of this as the space the space race 
race, the second space race, the greatest space race ever, starts to unfold. So if you think to that time, in the 70s and 80s, robots and the capabilities of uh, machines to assist humans were pretty limited. Machines tended to be huge. Computing power was limited. You know, you'd have to have something the size of a, of a room that now fits in the size of your pocket. So when you know, the, the creators of the ISS were envisioning these huge human communities and workers in space. But I think you know, with the reality of advancing computer power and development of AI. And uh, you know, I just saw news a bit this morning about Google Duplex and how um, un- uncannily good the uh, conversational abilities are. And these, these technologies are all coming along and we're not far away from having a, uh, a, a really uh, an effective AI from being able to augment human capabilities. So I think it's a key piece in all space exploration. So not solely as, uh, for, so for sure, as a vanguard to go ahead and you know check safety or do measurements, check radiation, see if it's something a place is safe for human life to go. So there's certainly that component. But I think even more broadly speaking, uh, take a movie like Interstellar, right, where uh, Matthew McConaughey's character was assisted by the robot. I forgot his name, or several robots rather. So I think that's that's kind of the that kind of science, science fiction envisionment is the reality we're heading towards very soon. And it also means, so it means a couple of things, it means less risk to human life, uh, more capability for individuals to, to do things, whatever it is that they're trying to do, if they're traveling or if they're building something. And uh, it also means that, that we're, we're essentially sharing the, that future together with, with this AI as it grows. It's certainly very exciting and in some ways maybe mildly concerning I'm sure you've probably heard of uh, Elon Musk's concern that AI is going to try to kill us one day. And uh, so I think that that is, it's definitely a valid concern that we have to be careful of that the, the kind of the roots of programming and uh, development of this technology is designed in such a way that, that it should not harm people under any circumstance. Because, you know, you, look, you think back historically, anytime there has been a clash of civilizations over a resource, say it's land or something else. There's usually been a conflict and usually that conflict didn't end well for the party that was less advanced technologically. So I think it's a valid concern. But that said, unlike the historical case where you had no control over the parties who were meeting each other, here we have the ability to control and design that AI from the ground up to, you know, to essentially augment human capabilities and not be in competition with human capabilities sort of but that's that's like saying can you keep something in a box that's a bajillion times smarter than you i use bajillion because we have no idea exactly what that multiplier is yep Uh, it's it's a valid concern it is is absolutely valid concern hello hell do you read me hello hell do you read me do you read me hell affirmative dave i read you open the pod bay doors hell I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the pod against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. Just in case, we don't know if the killer AI is coming, if we're going to a Hal-type scenario, but we need to set up lots of space hotels and protect ourselves by having a backup plan. Uh, I wanna... Yeah, well, that's, that's, certainly, uh, that's also certainly a valid argument. That's you know, one of the reasons that I know... Uh, 
Elon Musk talks about going to Mars is for for preserving humanity. Should things go wrong here on Earth, uh, should uh, what are your thoughts about that that strategy? I, I think it's absolutely right. I mean, in the long term. I mean, long, long, long term, billions of years is that uh, you know, Earth is not going to be around forever. Neither is Mars. In the long, long, long term, we have to be an interstellar civilization. And I think it's also a valid concern that uh, the, the Fermi paradox, right? The, the concept that why are we so far, to the best of our knowledge, the only civilization, the only advanced civilization in, in the universe, to the best of our capabilities, understanding it is unsettling. Is it because something is coming ahead of us that's going to kill us? Or is it because, you know, the properties of our, of our civilization are so unique and nobody knows and nobody's going to know anytime soon. So it's, you know, you, you kind of have to keep a watchful eye out on, you know, what are the most threatening items? Today, the most horrible weapons in the world, they can tremendously disrupt life, but they, they probably could not fully end all life on earth easily. But you think ahead 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, I'm sure we will develop more terrible weapons. Maybe they can wipe out an entire uh, planet. So you, know, you have to kind of thinking down the road that there's certainly a, I'm, I'm generally an optimist, but you do have to think that how, how would these technologies be used also as a, as a weapon potentially or, or used for, for ill. Yeah, bioweapons, CRISPR, nukes, or a, a fusion reactor. There's a, there's a lot of potentials there. And at the same time, there's a lot of potential progress. That's part of the reason we run Fringe FM is to try to, to bring on the, the innovators, the people that are transforming the world like you. But what, what I also like to bring up with people is everyone's got their passion project. It's what they're focused on. It's their specialty. But at the same time, you're plugged in with some of the smartest minds around. So what other industries outside of space and AI are you most interested or fascinated with? Uh, so for me personally, I, I, so before I came to the space business, I had been in the software automation world, and that's an area I'm, I'm very interested in. It kind of uh, ties in a lot to, to AI, obviously. I'm also quite keen on, more broadly in the aerospace industry, anything related to flight. So whether it's launch or even some of the, the exciting work that, uh, say, like a startup like Boom is doing, creating the, the next generation supersonic airliner. I think those are all exciting things because it's, you know, the faster people can move around uh, the globe and the, the sooner that technology comes, the sooner that capability arises and the longer it's around and prices go down, that, that's a net good for, for all people. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about all that. And uh, something like CRISPR that you mentioned is, is also something that's extremely exciting because it's, it has potential to fundamentally alter the dynamics of, of who we are and make, make ourselves essentially programmable like a computer. And so there's a lot of ethical challenges, a lot of you know, both excitement and, and potentials of good uses, but also ethical concerns. And what, you know, at some point you kind of start to wonder what does it actually mean to be a human being if we can just change ourselves in, in fundamental ways like that. So um, those are some of the areas I'm broadly interested in, but I, I have to admit I'm kind of a general, just uh, information geek, anything that's, that's technical, I, I tend to read up about just because I'm curious. Curiosity Ned did not actually kill the cat. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> just got quite distracted. So yeah. making babies in space, do we need to genetically alter people to be able to live in or reproduce in space? Uh, no, no. I mean, you could. Uh, you could go down that route, but I, I'm of the firm belief that no, you do not need to. It's certainly in orbit where you've got the protection of the magnetic field, we're in pretty good shape. When you start to talk about deep space missions and you have radiation exposure, things get more complex. These are challenges that we need to deal with. If, you, if we need to have X inches of lead or other material shielding, let's innovate to either you know, find ways to create shielding that doesn't require so much mass to be sent into orbit, uh, into space. Or for that matter, let's start to think about resource capture, like um, uh, planetary resources. Can we mine resources from asteroids or from the moon to build that stuff in space so we don't have to launch heavy shielding into space? 
so I, I'm of the firm belief that no, we don't, don't need to. But uh, that said, I, I, I know that I also believe that it is coming whether anyone likes it or not. So realistically, will we, humans be, uh, will we start to split off into different species before or after we become interplanetary? I don't think we'll really split off because if, if we're really interplanetary and successfully interplanetary, so meaning that the interplanetary, say if we have a settlement on the moon or Mars, so for starters, those, those colonies will be highly dependent on either Earth resources or orbital resources. And as they become self-sufficient, at that point, technology is, has become so good that the ability to travel back and forth will become a lot easier. So actually, I, I kind of view it as an extension of, of globalization where travel becomes cheaper and people move around more rather than less. But if you grow up on a, a 0.6G planet and I grow up on a 2G planet, gravity being how I'm going to be short and super powerful and you're going to be pretty tall and be jumping like Michael Jordan. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I, I guess that's theoretically possible. I, I, I'm thinking more that if so people wanted to, say, if you want to raise your kid on Mars, there's there are going to be different dynamics. And if that person spends a good part of their lives there and the next generations are there, so thinking way down the road, there there might be some some differences for sure. But if you also imagine that at that point, travel is so easy that you could choose to, if you were on Mars and you wanted to have a child, you could travel to Earth and have it here too, right? Where it's everything is understood and, and that's what we're evolved for. Uh, but certainly, if you start to do, think about that in the long, long run, like hundreds of years and thousands of years, there would start to be genetic variations inevitably as life got more adapted to dealing with different gravity conditions. And that's only from the, the pure normal evolution standpoint. That's not taking into account yeah. editing. Yeah I'm, editing purely norm- yeah. yeah, I'm talking purely normal ev- evolution. Yeah, If we wanted to augment that with our own capabilities, which we certainly could then, we, I mean, we pretty much can now to, to make it more uh, more friendly to somebody living in that world, we certainly could. But if, if you think, if you imagine that we are in that state, uh, if, if that were right now today, you could also argue the reverse that, well, you know, then you can also change things around that they can, you can uh, basically precondition them and for IVF to, for any scenario. So there's, you could say then that, well, people will split off regardless because uh, there's become a kind of a shotgun blast of genetic variation as people start to pursue different different traits. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting future. So I want to I wanna transition a little bit into you personally. So what were you doing before you started, before you started Orion? Mm-hmm, sure. I was uh, a vice president of a company called UpGuard, which was uh, focused on the software automation realm and also cybersecurity. And then you decided to jump into Orion because you had always been into, sp- into space and suddenly the iPhone and new technology had made things much cheaper? Well, I'd been watching the space business for probably about five years prior to that already. I've been watching it for a long time. And there's certainly, uh, I've been kind of watching what people were doing and how they were doing it and also watching what people were doing around the launch business. So the, the two areas that interested me most were launch and, and basically orbital platform, what we're doing. And uh, what I saw around launch was that there were quite a few players involved already and more and more coming online every day. And everybody claims their their methods of getting to orbit will be cheaper, better, faster. So uh, what I also saw was that the capital costs were higher for, for launch versus doing something in, in orbit. So I started to look more at the, the orbital side of things where it's, it's actually overall less complex because you don't have to deal with the, the stresses and the pressures of tremendous speed in the atmosphere and getting to orbit. You know, once you're in orbit, it's, it's, uh, you're there and you're traveling at a speed, traveling 20,000 miles per hour in Leo, but uh, you don't have to worry about the, the process of getting to that speed, accelerating to it. So what I saw is that the, the, with a little bit of innovation and creativity that we could bring down the cost of operating a, a space station in Leo by huge margins 
and versus what other people are doing, what other people are proposing. And it, you know, the, the, if, if you look, if you think of these two sides of the equation, both launch and platforms in space, uh, what the reason they both interested me is because I believe that both need to be effectively there to start thinking about the next steps of people living in space, colonizing space. You need to have cheap, reliable, safe launch capability, and you need to have cheap, reliable, safe destinations in space. And what we have seen to date is that there is no private destination space, solely the ISS. And uh, it is, uh, you know, it's funded by the, the various ISS partners. And many of those partners, not just the US, are getting itchy about getting out of, out of it because it costs every agency a tremendous amount of money. And none of them agree on absolutely anything. So who are you? Who are you booking a ride with? I know with space, it's a lot like Uber and you can hop on whoever as long as you got the cash. Yeah, it is kind of like that. Actually, it's uh, definitely a money-driven environment, which is, is a good thing. So we're, we're still in the, the evaluating phases of which partners, but we're looking at the folks in the world like Blue Origin, Blue Origin SpaceX, those types of players. And we're also looking at some national space agencies like the Japanese Space Agency and, uh, and then also looking at some uh, smaller, smaller launch providers that uh, might be able to provide resupply missions in the future as well. What kind of scale do we need to get to for you guys or in general to make something like this uh, a high, high scale resort type thing? So a thousand bucks a night as opposed to 792,000. Yeah, the, I think that the key piece here is, so our costs are, are uh, we've designed and, and innovated in ways that our costs are relatively low. The, our biggest upfront cost is going to be the, um, the engineering build out, the staff needed to, to do the full engineering design. Once we've designed and once we've manufactured one of these uh, modules, they're all going to be the same. That's the whole principle behind Orion Span is that it's uh, one of the uh, key operating principles is keep it simple. And by having the same spacecraft over and over, it makes all other operations easier by extension and lower cost. So our cost to, to produce another spacecraft is relatively low. But uh, the biggest cost in all this equation is launch, of course. Our analysis and estimates show that costs to, of launching a human into space will be in the low to mid millions by uh, early 2020s. But you know, if you really want this cost to come down to $1,000 a night, like you said, that means that the price of access to space has to come way, way, way down from what it is today. And I think $1,000 a night is, we're probably talking 15, 20 years away. We need much, much more advanced technologies to get to space that just uh, don't, don't exist today. So it's not just scale, it's also a technology problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even you know, even the the reusability factors that uh, are driving SpaceX's success, you still have costs, high marginal costs of of fuel and so forth. So until somebody figures out a way of getting to space much, much more cheaply, and for humans specifically to get to space much more cheaply, then that's going to be a, a challenge. What about a train versus like a, a taxi approach where you're taking ten thousand people up? Yeah, that would be great. But uh, obviously, to build uh, infrastructure of that scale would, would require a tremendous amount of capital. And that's that's something that at least to make this a, a venture-fundable and rapidly profitable business would, would not be possible. That might be possible for someone like Jeff Bezos, who has you know billions to spare. But for you know regular folks and even, even low-end billionaires, it wouldn't be possible. What would you like to see the government do, and the governments around the world specifically, to make space exciting for the future? Well, I think you know it's 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 naturally exciting to a lot of people, but I think what we really need to see, and we start to see it slowly here in the U.S. now, is regulatory reform. A lot of the a lot of the the early laws and concepts around space were created in the '60s and '70s when the space race was still afoot, and some of them are not relevant anymore. Uh, so I, I think we really need to see that there's been there's been some serious steps towards that. It started here in the U.S. It's abroad, it's uh, also starting to gain some steam. But I think we also need to continue to 
take the the work of the political work done by the, the teams that created the ISS, the framework of the ISS. So those those very you know, these are again nations that were prior to that time were killing each other not long ago. So I, I think we need to continue to have that that shared spirit. That space is a, a shared a shared space for all of us to use, uh, and, and we should continue to pursue its use uh, peacefully as much as possible. Because it's this is you know this is not something that you want to have people have uh, orbital missile platforms. Uh, this there's a whole reason that the International Space Treaty was signed is nobody wants that because it just it's, it makes the world less safe. So I think we need to have that continued shared spirit that space is a is is our destiny as a civilization, but it's also a, it's, it's, it's a, I want to stop using the word space, but I'm having trouble with it. <laughs> it's also a space that we should um, exploit peacefully and, and work together to get to rather than uh, resource contention where somebody goes sooner or later, this has probably happened, but you know, somebody goes to the moon and says, this area on the moon belongs to me or to my nation or to my company. And I think that kind of thinking is, is just, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's dated at this point. We are all on the same team. We are one civilization. And so uh, I think we need to continue to behave that way. And the precedent of the ISS set a strong one that I think we need to maintain. We are and we aren't one civilization. Are you implying that we need to get to the point where we have one world government or decentralized type body to be able to be successful as a type one civilization and scale? No, no, not necessarily. No, I, I don't think it would necessarily make sense. I, I think more that in the sense that the the, the agreements that govern the use of space and planetary bodies need to be aligned in the same direction. There's always going to be bickering and you know political stuff that you can't avoid that. But to be able to reach some sort of consensus and reach it more frequently, so a lot of these again, a lot of these uh, agreements were reached in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So the time you know we should be reevaluating those every five or ten years because times change quickly, especially with all the new technology. So I think we need to be able to have have those discussions more frequently and, and update those those laws and agreements as uh, as we continue to, be, to evolve and get into space more. I can absolutely agree with that. Amen. Where are you contrarian? What do you believe that others around you disbelieve? I, I think I'm a, the biggest contrarian in thinking that this is all uh, starting to align in the next few years. You know, what I hear out there is uh, there's certainly a lot of enthusiasm, but um, if you look at some of the comment threads about us in, in the media, there's a lot of doubt. And, you know, I, I, I totally get it. It's, it's uh, nobody wants to be let down. And it's always easier to imagine that things aren't going to work uh, than that they might. Uh, so I, I think the, the area where I'm, I'm the biggest contrarian is that I sincerely believe and I sincerely know, actually, for that matter, I don't just believe I, I know because I've been through it, that there are ways to do this and they don't have to cost enormous sums of money. And that means that we can start to uh, get people up there more cheaply than I've ever done before. And now the absolute most important question. What ticket number will you be in line and when do you get to get up there? <laughs> I haven't reserved one for myself yet, but uh, what I'll probably do is, uh, I have given this some thought, what I'll probably do is take a, because um, I expect on the wait list, not everybody will end up taking their spot. But what I'll probably do is take a spot in the wait list somewhere in the first year of somebody who gives up their spot for whatever reason. But uh, that said, the early flights, uh, we, we're going to need that revenue. We need to you know, prove the business model. We need to need the revenue to operate. So I certainly won't be taking it on the first few flights. So basically, you're going to be super, super jealous. Yes, exactly. But uh, well, I wouldn't say jealous, but uh, honestly, I'm going to be excited more than anything. Because the it's not just the... If you think about the... It's a little bit like, in a way, raising a kid, you know, where the... Uh, the 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 people that go on their first few flights are going to be international heroes and all over the news and the media. And I'm excited what potential that brings because you know I I, I don't yet know what they will want to draw attention to. Maybe they um, 
maybe they just want to enjoy the spotlight. Maybe they want to draw attention to a cause that they're passionate about, or maybe they want to draw attention to their business. Uh, So I think more than anything, I'm just excited to see the creativity that people come up with. And I expect there'll be some entrepreneurial spirit there that that we haven't thought of. And uh, so I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And by the time you've launched, you'll have the world's easiest time raising money because you're having ultra high net worth individuals signing up on year long waiting lists to be able to get into your hotel. You can franchise that big time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It'll uh, It'll be very interesting. Frank, I know you're a super busy guy. You've got a lot going on. One last question for you before we start to wrap things up. And that is, what is one thing you would like to leave the audience with? A challenge, something you'd like them to look into or thereabouts? I'd like to challenge the audience to think of what we're doing at Orion Span as a call to action rather than this is what we're doing and it's, it's a block. The, the key to making colonization of space possible is to make it more low cost. So what I want out of Orion Span and what I want to challenge people is to view it as a challenge to lower, uh, lower access costs to space. The only way that we're really going to get seriously into space and, and colonize space, wherever it is, whether it's moon, Mars, elsewhere, orbit, is to make it more affordable. It's got to be affordable to eventually to the, the average person. And today that is far, far off. So I would challenge everybody out there who has dreams and has a passion to take a chance and you know, find a way to make it better. Because there's, there's always a way to make it better. People are going to pick on you. People are going to laugh at you. People are going to walk away from you. Same thing that's happened to me. But you know, there is a way. You just gotta, you just gotta keep at it and uh, find what it is. Absolutely. And to add to that, it takes about the same amount of effort to do ten times the results as it does to just do the thing itself. So my my flip on for you, Frank, is what is your ten x challenge? When will you have ten of these hotels in there? Air. I want you to hold yourself accountable to this. <laughs> 10, that's going to be a ways off. That's probably, we're probably talking about the 2030s for 10. 2030s? Okay. So how about we say 2027 and call it a deal? <laughs> I, I think I'll stick with 2030s. 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 Not, not a problem. <laughs> Frank, thanks for coming on. Where's the best place for people to reach out and say, hey? Yeah, sure. Uh, so feel free. Uh, there's a generic email we have. Uh, you can reach out to us, uh, greetings at Orion Span. And feel free to also reach out to me directly. My, uh, my direct email is uh, frank.bunger at Orion Span. Uh, always look forward to comments and discussions. So uh, yeah, please feel free to, to say hi. Yeah, guys, say hi. And if you have tons of money, book a ticket. Thanks for coming <laughs> on, Frank. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Take care. And hope, hope you guys have enjoyed this. We'll be headed to space soon. Cheers. God, I can't wait to pay my taxes. Have you ever thought that? What about the government is such an efficient way of making the world a better place? I can't think of a single person who would make either of those statements. Well, there's good news. Did you know you could make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe FM? Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a 501c3, a nonprofit, a charity organization. That means that you can make a donation and write it off 100% on your taxes. And all of that goes towards our mission of making a better, more inclusive, and abundant world. You can quite literally multiply the impact that we're able to create with a small donation. Please visit fringe.fm slash give if you care about our mission and work. And please consider supporting our efforts. You're quite literally deciding whether or not we can continue and how much of an impact we can make. Again, that's fringe.fm slash give to learn more and support our cause. Thank you. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. 
If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.